Well, I've really enjoyed uh, reading the letter that Paul wrote to the Romans with you uh, for, actually, we've been at this for a few months, haven't we? And today we come to the end. Um, and so as the, the credits roll on this great epistle to the Romans, Paul has one more thing to teach us. He has some words to share about prayer. Now, it's a little bit hard for me to talk about prayer because I'm no expert. I, I believe in, in prayer, but I don't do it as much as I would like to do it. And I think part of that is I really uh, don't understand how it works. And I was thinking about that this week, and I realized, you know what? I don't have a clue how my cell phone works, but I use it incessantly. So um, maybe there is an opportunity for us this morning. And I, as I, I read this text, I, I, I found myself wanting uh, to pray more. And, and that's my hope for you as we read it together as well. And Paul, in chapter 15, is actually praying. There are several prayers in there, but the prayer that interests me the most is the one that goes unanswered. So let's talk today about unanswered prayer. Would you open up your Bible to Romans chapter 15, verses 22 through 33? And uh, we provide a Bible for you, the black book on the rack. It's page 925. <clears throat> Romans 15, verses 22 through 33, the end of the chapter there. And if you're able, would you stand with me? Let's read aloud together as an act of worship as the people of God. When we're done reading, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord, so that if you believe it, you can say, thanks be to God. Listen carefully, you're reading God's holy word. Paul says, this is the reason that I have so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, with no further place for me in these regions, I desire, as I have for many years, to come to you when I go to Spain. For I do hope to see you on my journey and to be sent on by you once I have enjoyed your company for a little while. <clears throat> At present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem in a ministry to the saints, for Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to share their resources with the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. They were pleased to do this, and indeed they owed it to them, for if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material things. So when I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will set out by way of you to Spain, and I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to join me in earnest prayer to God on my behalf, that I may be rescued from the unbelievers in Judea, and that my ministry to Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. The God of peace be with all of you. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord lasts forever. Please be seated. You may keep the book open. If you do, you'll notice verse 30, prayer. Paul says, join me in earnest prayer. To God. And so he's praying. He's praying right now in Greece. And he, he's basically praying that he will have an opportunity to go to Jerusalem 
and that everything will go well in Jerusalem so that he can go on to Rome and that in Rome, the Christians who are there can launch him on a mission to Spain. Now, as it turns out, we know from other sources, this is not what happened. <laughs> uh, this prayer went unanswered. Things did not go well for Paul in Jerusalem. He was beaten, killed. There was a riot, mob formed. He was arrested. Actually, he had to, he had to, he had to throw himself into the hands of unbelievers in order to be saved. He needed the Romans, and he submitted himself as a prisoner to the Romans, and for the next five years, he'd be a prisoner. From A.D. 57, when he writes this letter, to A.D. 62, Paul will be in chains. Not what he was praying for, I'm sure. And yet, even to this unanswered prayer, there was a yes. Because something remarkable did happen. There was an unexpected answer. God, in fact, would get him to Rome... And we read about this in Acts 20 to 28. You can hear the story there. But it happened in a very different way than he expected. Actually, he would get to Rome at Roman expense with a Roman guard. And he wouldn't just end up visiting with these few house churches. He was going to be ushered right to the throne of Nero. He was penetrating the fortress, the citadel of power in the ancient world. Who could have asked for that? He'd be chained in her house arrest. Visitors would come and go as he would share the good news with them. He would have an, a, a detachment of the Praetorian Guard, which, as you know, this elite special forces of the emperor himself, like the Secret Service. They'd be standing next to him on eight-hour shifts as he talked about Jesus. It's very likely that he wrote the letter to the Philippians in Rome under house arrest in just this way. And as he dictated the letter, these, these Roman guard would be listening to the story of Jesus. And, and Paul says, man, this is not the way I wanted it, but it's turned out for the better. You know, Rome, Philippians, this great epistle of joy, not what I wanted, but man, it's been better than I could have imagined. And then at the end of the letter, in, in, in chapter 4, verse 22, Paul slips in there, this intriguing little line. He says, all the saints greet you, especially those of the emperor's household. What's he saying there? The gospel is in the emperor's household. <laughs> now, he wasn't, he wasn't asking for that, but that's what God gave him. J.R.R. Tolkien invents a word. The word is eucatastrophe. It's E-U, catastrophe. E-U is the Greek word for good. This is a good catastrophe. He's talking about something bad that turns out into something really good. He says it's the sudden happy turn in a story which pierces you with joy that brings tears. You catastrophe. Didn't see it coming. Didn't ask for it. Couldn't have imagined it. But there it is, a crisis that gets flipped on its head and ultimately becomes something beautiful. Well, apparently that's what Paul is experiencing as he prays. And I want to think with you about implications for us, three in fact. I want to talk to you about the definition of prayer that's here, the struggle of prayer that's here, and also, most importantly, the blessing 
of prayer. So let's start with a definition of prayer. I realized as I read this story and put the pieces together that I had the wrong definition for prayer. Here's a better definition for prayer. Prayer is, you might want to write this down, prayer is authorizing God to direct my circumstances, even when it's against my desires. This is hard. Prayer is authorizing God to direct my circumstances, even when it's against my desires. In fact, the, the reason I thought this was unanswered prayer is because I had the, bad, the wrong definition for prayer. I, 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 well, all I see in this passage is frustrated desire. If you look more carefully, you see in verse 23b, Paul's talking about his desire. He actually uses a very strong word for desire in 23. I desire, as I have for many years, to come to you on my way to Spain. I desire, I long for, I have this great desire. I've had it for many years. And you can imagine that for those many years, he's been praying about what he wants, about his desire. And he's saying it hasn't happened. Uh, God has hindered me, he says. I've been hindered, meaning this is a polite Jewish way of saying God has hindered me. Uh, God has been saying no again and again and again to something that I really, really wanted. And God didn't give me my desires, but he gives me something better. Now, what, what has God given Paul that's better? Well, he, in this passage, verse 23, he calls it a place. No further place for me in these regions. He, he, a place. Uh, that has puzzled theologians. What does he mean by a place? Well, it, it's not just a geolocation. It's, uh, it's an opportunity. That's what he's had in the east, east of Italy. He's had this opportunity uh, to share the good news. And it's, it's God's place for me at this time. It's where God wants me to be. It's the place for which I have been designed. It's a place of purpose and mission and meaning for me. It's, it's where I'm supposed to be. And, and even though it wasn't initially where I wanted to be, as I longed to be somewhere else, it's where God had me. He kept hindering me. He kept saying no. And he said no because he had a better yes. Uh, prayer is authorizing God to decide what's better for me or not, to direct my circumstances even when it's against my desire. See, here, my, my functional definition for prayer has been, and, I, and I, would, I hate to admit this, I would never preach this in a sermon, but I realized this this week. My functional definition of prayer, prayer is telling God how to get me what I desire. Oh, that's boring. I mean, no wonder I fall asleep when I pray. It's just the same thing I'm doing in every other area of my life. Try to get other people to get me what I desire, right? And God's just one more agent in that great cosmic scheme that seems to be George Hinman's life. Do, do I really need God to reinforce the notion that George exists at the center of the universe and that and what is good for George is what's good for everybody else? Do I really want God to give me everything I want? No, not really. I know that. I know that's not really what's best, even for me. And so here's a definition of prayer that makes a difference. But it requires me to trust that God loves me. See, God loves me too much to give me anything less than what he knows will be best for me. And that's true not just for me, but for the people around me and for the world. Prayer gives him permission to do that. But we have to trust him. And and this is what the Apostle Paul has been urging upon his readers from the very beginning. Remember, Romans 5.8 says, God proves his love 
for us. And that while we were still sinners, before I started to clean up my life, we wanted to clean up my life. God loved me in that state as a sinner. Christ died for us. He said, that's the proof that you're beloved. Christ died for us, Romans 5.8. And then in Romans 8.32, he says, he who did not withhold his own son, but gave him up for us all, will he not with him also give us everything else? Beloved children, your Father in heaven is so eager to give you every good and perfect gift. We just need to authorize him to meddle in the circumstances of our lives. God has a, a better desire than mine and yours. He has a greater good than we can imagine. And prayer is our portal into that place, into that opportunity, into that experience for which, in the mystery of God, we have been prepared. Paul's learned this. An example of this in Paul's life, I love this, in Acts 16, you can read it later, there's a moment where Paul is in Asia Minor, he's in Turkey, and he wants to go deeper towards Asia, and he goes, I want to go left. And he goes, I realize that Jesus wants me to go right. Very frustrating moment. Paul, in Luke's words, he's talking about Paul and his team. This is Acts 16, 7. They attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. Wouldn't you love to know how the Spirit did that? What was that? I mean, was that like a fight that broke out? Was it they were having visa problems? They couldn't get bus money cobbled together? Landslide? I have no idea, but the Spirit of Jesus said no. (laughs) Unanswered prayer, not going east. Not going Asia. And Paul had been so frustrated with that. But what he did, so he goes to bed that night, and he has this dream, and there's a vision, and it's a vision of a man. It's a European from Macedonia, from north of Greece. And this man is saying, come and help us. And he says, when we saw the vision the next morning, immediately we began to make plans to cross over because he knew this is where Jesus was calling him. Not where he wanted to go, but there was a place. There was an opportunity. And because they say, yes, man, Churches start springing up like flowers all around Greece and into Europe. Now Paul is, for the first time, on European soil, Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, Corinth. I'm reminded of G.K. Chesterton. He says, an adventure is just an inconvenience misunderstood. And an inconvenience is just an adventure misunderstood. Paul says, really, what I want is the adventure Please learn how to do this. Prayer, that's a definition. Authorizing God to direct my circumstances even when it's against my desires. Let's move on to the problem because, I, I mean, i got to be honest. This is really hard. It's, um, I don't actually do this very often. And the point here is that, secondly, this kind of prayer always involves a struggle. Struggle. Paul says in verse 1530, join me in earnest prayer, or if you happen to be looking at the NIV translation, you'll see it more clearly. He says, join me in my struggle. The Greek word there is the word from which we get our word agony. Sorry, it's the word agon. It's used of athletes, wrestlers. It's used of soldiers. Prayer is a struggle, Paul says. I want you to, I earnestly invite you to join with me in the struggle Now, why would prayer be a struggle? Well, it's because we're asking someone else to take responsibility for our circumstances. We're giving someone the right to frustrate our desires, 
You're not going to do that easy. Neither do I. It's not easy to surrender our agenda to God's agenda, even when we know God loves us. There's a struggle. Now, this is what we see in Jesus' life. Luke tells us when Jesus was facing the cross at the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is praying, and he uses this word. Jesus is praying in agony, praying in anguish. Remember, there, were, there was sweat like blood coming from his forehead. Why? He didn't want to go to the cross any more than you or I would. He's a human being. It's like, God, take this cup away from me. It's not my desire. My desire is to live. It's not my desire. But not my will, but thy will be done. There it is. That's the struggle. You know what? I've known enough of, of, of your love, Father, to know that even though I have a desire, the frustration of my desire will be better for me and better for the world and bring more glory to you than the fulfillment of my desire. So in the end, I'm on my knees to take my agenda and lay it at the foot of the cross and, and give you permission to now work today, tonight, in the next three days, your agenda. That's, that's hard to get there. I understand that. But Paul's doing that. That's why he says in verse 23, I, ask, I want this so that by God's will. He's actually quoting Jesus. But what I want is God's will. So there's a little, little asterisk in there. just wanted to remind himself, if not anybody else, that what I most want is God's will, God's agenda. I remember when I was a senior in college and I was thinking about the future and a job, and I, there was one job, particular job, I really wanted to get. And I, you know, was always good with words. And so I optimized my resume to make it look like I was the perfect candidate for this job. I interviewed, I networked, I did all the stuff to get this job, and I was ready to get that invitation. Uh, most of all, because I had just come to faith in Jesus and I was really praying and I was just convinced this is what God wanted. And you know what he said to me? Nope. That's not your job. And I was crushed. I was angry. It was like this crisis of faith. What do you mean? <laughs> I've been praying about this. You told me I would get this job. Oh, he's like, oh, really? Did I? Because I can't remember that. Now you know what that job looks like? I look back on that, and I think at the time, that job was really entangled with a, a relationship that I had that was a very unhealthy relationship. If I had gotten that job, that relationship would have just festered. And now I look back and I go, if I had taken that job, I wouldn't have ended up with my wife, Anne. I wouldn't have been here uh, today with you. I'm like, wow, that's good. Coming out of something I couldn't even see, let alone ask for. I've authorized God. But see, when I prayed, what I did was I gave God permission to make it work out that way. I was an idiot. I didn't realize that. I probably, would, I probably wouldn't have prayed about it if I, if I hadn't wanted it to turn out, turn out that way. But I said, God, yeah, you, 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 you're in control here. <clears throat> that was the struggle for me. Reminds me of the old story about the Fortune 500 CEO who pulls into a gas station with his wife. He runs out, pays at the shop, and he comes back, and his wife is engrossed in conversation with the gas station attendant. And as they drive away, he looks at her, he says, honey, I, I, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking if you had married that guy, you'd be the wife of a gas station attendant. She goes, no, actually, I was thinking that if I'd married that guy, 
he'd be a Fortune 500 CEO today and you'd be pumping gas. <laughs> There's some real truth to that. And I just, want to, I just want to pause. By the way, I want to say, prayer is really important in marriage. And I know many of us are not married, but um, research has shown one of the few things that correlates to a healthy marriage is actually praying together. That, that's really important. I can remember when I was a young adult and I really wanted to be a husband, I, I engaged this struggle of prayers, praying for a spouse and to become a husband. <laughs> and, and, it, and I believe, honestly, Looking back on it, it wasn't until I was willing to say, Lord, if it is your will for me to be single for the rest of my life, then that's what I want, that I was ready to be married. I had to get there before God would even allow the right person to come into my life. Prayer is important when you've been married for years, like I have, just, just celebrated 30 years. And I, I wrote in my journal this summer, Ann loves me. Um, but what's more important to me is that Anne loves something bigger than me. You know what's given us confidence in our marriage? It's knowing that each other loves something more than the other. We love God more than the other. And that is so important. To know that God loves us and has us and to trust him with our circumstances when we're in trouble with one another, when we're in trouble with our circumstances in the world, to know that God is here in the person of Jesus Christ in this covenant, that matters. You, you don't want your spouse to love you more than anything else in the world. You want your spouse to love Jesus more than anything else in the world. See, then what happens is you're struggling with Jesus, not with one another as much. And that's the important thing. Chris Nichols, this new um, executive director for ministry, led our staff in prayer this week. And, and he used this definition of prayer. I had just shared it with him. And he, he said, wow. So he built a prayer meeting around this. So staff, he said, let's pray, recognizing that prayer is authorizing God to direct my circumstances even uh, when it's against my desires. And he says, I want, I want you to do this. And we all did silently. And he says, but this was the insightful thing. He said, I want you to pay attention to the resistance inside of you. And for me, it was like, bam, immediately. And I thought, oh my gosh, as head of staff, it should take me a little longer than anybody else to find the resistance. Oh no. Immediately, I'm face to face. I'm just sensing my um, insecurity, my fear my desire to be in control, I realize there is a fence I've put around some things. My agenda has a fence around it. With my money, with my family, with my work, with the future, it's right there. I'm like, don't you dare touch any. You can, you can do what I tell you to do, but don't you dare touch any of this, right? And I realize the fence has my stuff, but you know what? God's on the other side of the fence. The place, the opportunity, it's on the other side of the fence with God. And, I, and as I prayed in that way, I, I didn't see him climbing the fence. I didn't see him tearing the fence down. I saw him standing there going, George, I'll come in the moment you invite me. But you've got to ask me. And that's what prayer is. It's authorizing Jesus to come and do his thing in your life. Not just in your soul, in your circumstances, to meddle. But you're going to experience that resistance you're not going to want to engage in the struggle. And so here's the, the last question. Why would you do that? <laughs> Someone's asking that today. Why would I do this? Well, the answer is the third point, and that's the blessing of prayer. The blessing of prayer. Hear this. It's about the circumstances. 
God answers with goodness in the worst of circumstances. I believe someone's here today who's in the worst of, of circumstances. And God brought you here just so you could hear this. God will answer your prayer with goodness in what you're in today. Circumstances will change. It's easy for us to go, oh, yeah, prayer doesn't really change the world. It changes us. And Paul's here to say it's going to change both, you and the world. Here's what intrigues me about this passage more than anything else. It's in verse 29. This is what caught my attention. Paul says, here's something I know for sure. There's a lot I don't know. I don't really know if I'm going to make it to Spain. Paul, by the way, he's never going to get to Spain. All the evidence shows he's never going to get there. I don't even know if I'll make it to Rome. I don't know if my desires will be fulfilled. But here's what I know. Verse 29, I know that when I come, wherever I go, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. The blessing of Christ. That word blessing is a Greek word. It's compound. It's eulogia. It's you, E-U, the word for good, plus logia, the word for word. Here's your answer, Paul says. God will speak his goodness into your life. He will bless you if you pray. That's the promise. Now, we don't know if this is the good word that Christ speaks or the good word that is Jesus Christ himself or both, but it's the promise. God will change your circumstances. We see this throughout the whole Bible, by the way. Remember Genesis? God speaks the good word that creates heaven and earth. And then the first thing he does is he speaks a good word to the man and the woman. He blesses them. And then the blessing, we follow it one generation to the next. Abraham is blessed to be a blessing. And then all the way, we watch that blessing pass. And we're wondering, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who's it going to be in the next generation? Turns out it's going to be Joseph. But it certainly doesn't look that way at the beginning. Because remember the story of Joseph. His life is a mess. The circumstances go awry. His brothers leave him for dead, put him in a pit, sell him as a slave. He's imprisoned and framed. But at the end of the story, he's standing there, prime minister of Egypt. And his brothers are gathering around him, and it's his moment to execute revenge on his persecutors. But he doesn't, because now he's ready for reconciliation. He, he's an agent of reconciliation. He says to them, what you meant for evil, God intended for good. He has flipped these circumstances so completely on our heads. He says, look at why we're blessed. It's Genesis. Well, you see this in the life of Jesus, in his ministry. This good word changes circumstances. The paralytic that they lowered through the ceiling, Jesus speaks a good word into his life, and he's forgiven, and he gets up and he walks. The widow of Nain, Jesus shows up at a funeral. They're, they're marching in grief, and Jesus speaks to her son, this young man. He sits up like nothing's wrong at all. His good word changes the circumstances, certainly for him and everybody else. And then the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, there in the daylight, standing in shame, and Jesus speaks a good word into her life, and she does the unthinkable. She goes back to the town that has ostracized her and, and proclaims the gospel of Jesus, and they come to receive not only her, but Jesus, their Savior, as well. Circumstances change. And this is what Paul has been arguing for all the way through this letter. Remember Romans 10, Tim read it for us earlier. Jesus is the word that is near to you, Paul has written. And if you hear him and confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's a promise you can take to the bank. It's going to change your circumstances. Even in your suffering, remember he said in chapter 5, well, suffering 
produces endurance. And endurance, character. And character, hope. It's going to change you. It's going to change the world. Romans 8, God's renewing all things. He makes all things work together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. The whole world is changing. Circumstances are going to matter because God has spoken his good word once and for all in Jesus Christ. This is the blessing. And Paul's saying, I'm struggling in prayer. I'm authorizing God to meddle with my circumstances, even against my desires. But I know wherever I go, I'm going every day more and more in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. I'm being filled up with God's good word. It's changing my life and it's changing the world around me because I'm praying. I mean, that makes me want to pray. This is what J.R.R. Tolkien calls you catastrophe. Prayer will put you right in the eye of that storm, the beautiful storm. Blessing. This is where we're headed as a church. Um, next Sunday, I told you we're going to talk about next door again. Really excited about that. But we are not going to go anywhere as a church. We have no future as a church apart from prayer. That's why it's so important we do this this week. And I want to give each of you a, a suggested prayer. Use your own words, but if you'd like, here's a little script. I'm going to be praying this exact prayer every day this week, and I, I, you might want to write it down. Here it is. Maybe we'll put it on Facebook. Blessed Savior, help me surrender my agenda to you so that you can speak your good word into my circumstances today. Can you imagine if we each prayed that every day just for seven days? Blessed Savior, help me surrender my agenda to you so that you can speak your good word into my circumstances today. Let me close with a, just a little story. This just happened last week. I got this letter as I'm working on this text from someone who is wrestling with unanswered prayer. This is a young adult in our congregation who was looking for work. And, you know, it always takes too long. And uh, didn't seem to, he, he, all my, he said, all my other jobs, I've been working with high net worth individuals, which I love. But you know what? I, I'm learning as a, a, a believer that Jesus is doing something else in the world and in my life. He says, kindred and next door made me ask questions about who has less than I do and who is my neighbor. And so, I, you know, he had worked with, on a football team at a wealthy school and he had worked in banking for um, high net worth clients. And he just didn't want to go back there and do anything, but he couldn't figure out what that all meant. He's struggling. And then he just tells me, and here's where his eyes are lighting up as I read this letter. I get this out of the blue phone call from somebody who's a recruiter who says, would you be interested in a, a mortgage, offering mortgages in, south of Seattle to people in low-income families? <laughs> it's like, would I be? And then he gets a phone call right at the same time from another friend who's a football coach south of Seattle. He says, would you be interested in being an assistant coach with me on this team? And he writes, he goes, oh my gosh, this is allowing me the opportunity to deepen my relationship, not only with the community, with neighbors, but with kids in that community and also with God. Who's there is, I can build a relationship with these kids and then get their family a home. He's like, this is amazing. It's like bringing together the threads of my life. And I didn't even know I was asking for this. He says, I feel very, and here's the word, blessed. I feel very blessed for all of this, and I'm extremely excited for this new chapter. That's the heart of you catastrophe. It's what Jesus does. Let's go to him in prayer right now. Jesus, right now, you are interceding on our behalf. Your Holy Spirit is joining us with groans too deep for word because we're praying. 
praying. And we're a little bit afraid of that. We're a little bit afraid of you, if we're being honest. Or being seen as kooky people that believe in invisible stuff. Um, but we, we want to move past that because we're very intrigued by what we see in a, in a Savior who becomes a human being to live and die on our behalf and has risen from the dead. And so we pray that you will meddle in our world, even in our lives, for your sake and for your glory. Amen.